Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. I'm going to do a podcast about the hearings right now. I've been listening to them. It's uh, day one of the questioning, and I see that the Democrats are more organized than they were during Kavanaugh. As uh, I'm sure many of you remember, I was on the Judiciary Committee. Man, I wish I was there asking questions, and that's what I'm going to do here. I'm going to. Uh, what you're going to hear are the questions I would ask. The Republicans have been raising straw men, uh, claiming that the Democrats are going after Judge. Tony Barrett's religion, which no one has, no, no one. Uh, Hawley of Missouri claimed that Democrats are aiming to get rid of Article 6 of the Constitution. Article 6 is there can't be religious tests <laughs> to get a job in the government, as if Democrats really want to do that. And of course, not one Democratic senator has said anything about her religion. Uh, John Kennedy of Louisiana told the judge that members of the committee have claimed overtly, he used the word overtly, uh, that you'd be on a mission from God to deny people health care. Now, Ben Sass gave this completely condescending speech about eighth grade civics. This is a quote. Civics is the stuff we're all supposed to agree on. Civics 101 is stuff like Congress writes the laws and, and the executive branch enforces the laws. The courts apply them. None of that stuff should be different if you're Republican or Democrat. Oh, my God. Well, you know, the ACA was a 5-4 vote. Citizens United was a 5-4 vote. Roe has been a 5-4 vote continually. It's all baloney, okay? So let me, let me get into uh, th- this is what I would be asking. Coney Barrett. Judge Coney Barrett, congratulations on your nomination and, and welcome to your uh, family. Your family was uh, there with you when the president announced your nomination at a, a ceremony in, in the Rose Garden. And uh, after the announcement, the attendees celebrated at a, a cocktail reception in the diplomatic reception room that spilled over into the hallway. Is that correct? Uh, Judge Since March 18th of this year, your Seventh Circuit has been operating under strict protocols to prevent the spread of the deadly coronavirus. All cases before the court have been argued either telephonically or by Zoom. And former Chief Judge Diane Wood issued an order that all persons entering the circuit's courthouse in Chicago must wear face masks and that any person found to violate that order would be held in contempt of court cited and expelled from the courthouse. Is that correct? So am I right in assuming that you are very much aware of the literally life and death importance of the CDC guidelines for observing social distancing and wearing masks in settings such as those that are accompanied 
the announcement of your nomination and the reception that followed in the White House, yes or no? And I would assume that you are acutely aware that as it now stands, over 213,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus. Is that correct? Would you happen to know how many of those attending that ceremony, including the president of Notre Dame, Reverend Richard I. Jenkins, have since tested positive for the coronavirus? Okay, uh, it's 11. And were you surprised by the angry reaction of Notre Dame students that have since petitioned Reverend Jenkins to resign for repeatedly failing to follow his own safety rules? As you probably know, living as you do in South Bend, uh, President Jenkins had previously apologized to students at Notre Dame for violating the social distancing rules he himself and impose on them. Did the call for Reverend Jenkins' resignation seem completely uncalled for? Yes or no? Did you yourself say anything to President Trump or to Mrs. Trump or to Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany or to her two deputies, Chad Gilmartin and Caroline Levitt or to Hope Hicks or to former White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway, or maybe to the members of this committee, Senator Tillis and, and Senator Lee. Senator Lee may right now be shedding the virus here in this room as we speak. Um, I don't believe he's actually been tested. He, I'm sure if he had been tested negative since, he would have told us. Um, same thing to former Governor Chris Christie or to any of the uh, so far anonymous White House staffers who were either in the Rose Garden or inside uh, serving drinks at the crowded receptions. Did you speak to any of those who have become infected with the deadly disease about the very clear and extremely reckless breach of government public health guidelines? Do you have any regrets that you did not? Why do you suppose that you decided not to say anything, even though you're certainly quite aware that contracting the disease could be fatal? Do you see why many Americans might think, wow, when confronted with a clear, life-threatening situation, she chose to stay quiet in service of her own career and her own personal life choices? You see how a reasonable person might come to that conclusion, yes or no? Speaking of which, let's move on to your views on abortion. In 2006, you signed a full-page newspaper advertisement sponsored by St. Joseph County Right to Life, what I would call an extreme anti-choice group located in South Bend. I use the word extreme because St. Joseph County Right to Life called for criminalizing the discarding of unused or frozen embryos created in the in vitro fertilization process, you certainly have the right to disagree with that characterization of a view you so strongly hold, but I, I think it is an entirely appropriate characterization because that view is considered extreme within the anti-abortion community. The ad called Roe v. Wade decision, quote, barbaric. Yes or no, is that correct? Mm -hmm. and, and you signed that, you and your husband. So at least at that time in 2006, uh, Judge Coney Barrett, you thought Roe v. Wade was a barbaric decision. Can you point to anything about Roe v. Wade that has changed since 2006 to alter your characterization of Roe v. Wade as barbaric? Yes or no? 
As a general rule, and not specifically about abortion, if you were seated on the court and you could overturn a previous decision that you considered barbaric, would it be safe to assume that you would be inclined to vote to overturn the barbaric decision? Okay, fair, fair enough, fair enough. Let's continue. The advertisement that you and your husband signed appeared in the South Bend Tribune stating, we the following citizens of Michiana oppose abortion on demand and defend the right to life from fertilization to natural death. Now, the executive director of St. Joseph County Right to Life told the Guardian newspaper that the organization's view on life beginning at fertilization did have implications for in vitro fertilization, which usually involves, almost always involves, the creation of multiple embryos. Quoting Ms. Applebaum now, whether embryos are implanted in the woman and then selectively reduced, or it's done in a Petri dish and then discarded, you're still ending a human life at that point, and we do oppose that. Ms. Applebaum added that discarding embryos during the IVF process was equal to the act of having an abortion. She went on to say, we support the criminalization of the doctors who perform abortions and then continued, we would be supportive of criminalizing the discarding of frozen embryos or selective reduction through the IVF process. So logically, it seems to me that you consider in vitro fertilization to be barbaric since it almost always involves the destruction of fertilized eggs. Am I right? I have to say, Judge, that I and I think a great majority of Americans find all of this of great concern because your personal views on abortion may not only shape reproductive rights in the U.S. for decades to come if you're confirmed, but also affect the legal rights of women undergoing fertility treatments, as well as that of their doctors. Now, I'd like to pose a hypothetical. I think when you hear it, you'll agree that it's not the kind of hypothetical that would commit you in any way to a legal doctrine, but one which might give us a better understanding of your embrace of the views of St. Joseph County Right to Life, because I don't think your answer would commit you to ruling in any way particular in a case that may come before you in the future. So here is the hypothetical. You're walking down the street, say in your hometown of South Bend. You turn the corner and you see a building on fire. You know this building. It houses two things, an in vitro fertilization clinic and a nursery school. The fire is very much out of control. The in vitro fertilization clinic has thousands, thousands of frozen fertilized eggs, thousands. These are thousands of human lives, according to St. Joseph County Right to Life. Now, it's 4 p.m., and in the nursery school, there's only one child, a three-year-old girl, who's still waiting to be picked up. Again, the building is ablaze, and you can run in, and save either the three-year-old child or the thousands of human lives in the clinic's freezers. Who would you save? The thousands and thousands of human beings in the freezers or the three-year-old girl who also is in a wheelchair? So here is my question. Do you save the little girl in the wheelchair 
or the thousands and thousands of human beings in the in vitro fertilization clinic and why. Now, I'd like to move on to an interview you gave to CBS News very soon after Justice Antonin Scalia died. In the interview, you made an adamant case as to why President Obama should not be able to choose a successor to fill Justice Scalia's place on the court during a presidential election year. Now, you started off by addressing the fact that Justice Anthony Kennedy had himself been seated during a presidential election year on February 18th, 1988. This is what you said. The vacancy did not arise in an election year. It rose the year before in June when Justice Powell retired. And Justice Kennedy was nominated in November of the prior year. Moreover, he was nominated after Bork's nomination had failed and Ginsburg, now Ginsburg was the guy who smoked pot and had to withdraw, after Ginsburg withdrew his nomination. So the wrangling for the spot, the conversation about the spot, the existence of the spot had been in play well before that. So according to Amy Coney Barrett, she wasn't a judge yet, a very notable difference between the Kennedy nomination and confirmation and any nomination which President Barack Obama would prospectively be making in February of 2016 was that the date that the spot that Kennedy would fill came into existence way, way before a presidential election year. My goodness, six months before the beginning of the calendar year of the next election. So it had been proper to seat Justice Kennedy during a presidential election year because the seat had come open in June the year before and that he had been nominated in the calendar year before the presidential election. But the Scalia seat had come open in the actual election year. And that was, that was, a difference between the two situations, the proximity to the presidential election. That February of 2016 was much closer to the 2016 November presidential election than June of 1987 was to November of 1988. That was the reason that you bothered to raise that. I mean, February of 2016 was just nine months away from the election, way closer than when the Powell vacancy came open with his retirement. Would that be a fair characterization of that part, that part of the argument that you laid out right after Justice Scalia died, yes or no? And my Republican colleagues on the judiciary made that same argument, did they not? In fact, that was the only argument that they made, so much so that they pledged on camera that they would not take up a nominee from a Republican president this year, if one were elected, and wanted to be held to that pledge. Isn't that right? And am I correct in saying that the 2020 presidential election is now 21 days away? And do you know how many ballots for president have already been cast? In the general election, not in the primary, in the general election, do you know how many? Well, neither do I, but last I checked, it was over 9 million. But in addition to the argument that any nomination that President Obama made so close to the election, 
you know, only eight months away, with the primary process having already started in New Hampshire just a few days before, why such a nomination is so close to the presidential election that it would be wholly illegitimate. Now, you made an additional argument as to why a nomination from Barack Obama should be rejected as compared to the Anthony Kennedy nomination. And let me quote you. We're talking about Justice Scalia, the staunchest conservative on the court, and we're talking about him being replaced by someone who could dramatically flip the balance of power in the court. It's not a lateral move. So according to you, in February of 2016, in addition to the vacancy coming open a mere nine months before the next presidential election, another significant difference between Kennedy's being seated in February of 1988 and any Obama nominee being considered by the Senate in February of 2016 was the fact that the Obama nominee would dramatically affect the balance of the court. That you said then, was another critical factor, yes or no. Now, Justice Ginsburg was the staunchest liberal on the court. And since you cite Justice Scalia as your mentor, and since you're every bit as staunchly conservative as Ginsburg is liberal, and since Chief Justice Roberts joined the four liberal justices in every one of the five four decisions that the court decided in the liberals' favor in this court's last term, including in June Medical, which was an abortion case, one might say that if confirmed, you would dramatically affect the balance of the court. So those are the two arguments that you led off with in your interview with CBS in February of 2016. And presumably, you wouldn't bother to make arguments that weren't valid. That's fair to assume that the arguments you gave weren't just meaningless, cynical hogwash, that you actually meant them to be genuine arguments for why my Republican colleagues could legitimately refuse to take up Obama's nominee. You made those two arguments sincerely. Am I right? So your third argument concerns power. In reference to a Democratic Senate taking up Anthony Kennedy, a nominee from a Republican president, you said, the question is, what does this precedent establish? And I don't think it establishes a rule for either side of the debate. If you look back at, say, the six justices that were confirmed in the 20th century in a presidential election year, all but one of those was confirmed in a period of united government where the president and the Senate were of the same political party. You noted that it shouldn't be a surprise that those justices were confirmed, but then raised Kennedy as kind of a, an exception. The president has the power to nominate, you said, and I don't think either of them can claim there's a rule governing one way or another. In other words, the two arguments you gave against taking up President Obama's nominee could be completely ignored by a pure exercise of power. Even though there have been millions of votes already cast in this presidential election, and even though 
your being seated would change the balance of the court. Those arguments that you yourself gave four years and eight months ago, well, they don't really matter at all, do they? It's okay to take up your nomination in complete contradiction to your other two supposedly legitimate excuses for not taking up Merrick Garland because, well, they can. Isn't that right? The Constitution gives the president the power to nominate. The Senate has the power to dispose. Now, maybe those first two arguments you gave weren't so legitimate in the first place. Maybe they were just cynical placeholders for a power grab. There's really no reason not to believe that because, in fact, that's exactly what the first argument was from my colleagues. And for the second one, well, you just came up with that all by yourself. I, I didn't hear anyone on the other side use it at the time. What they didn't admit was that the real reason they didn't take up Merrick Garland had nothing to do with the election. They stopped Merrick Garland because they could. But they weren't honest enough to say it. They had to pretend it was based on some bogus principle. That the primaries had already begun. And to prove it, they swore up and down that they wouldn't take up a nominee in 2020 with the Republican president. Isn't this just a little embarrassing? And I'm talking to the Republicans on the committee. Isn't this just a little embarrassing to all of you over there? You know, the chairman has pledged a number of times that he would not take up a Supreme Court nominee in an election year from a Republican president. He told the Atlantic Monthly Festival attendees, quote, if an opening comes up in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process had started, we'll wait till the next election. You're on the record, said the moderator. Yeah, said Chairman Graham. Hold the tape. But now there's another excuse, the treatment of Brett Kavanaugh. But you know what? That hold the tape, that was after Kavanaugh had been confirmed. Do you guys have no shame? That's a rhetorical question. I know the answer. Judge Coney Barrett, you're right. According to the Constitution, the Republican Senate has the power to confirm you regardless of the principles you and they so cynically laid down after Justice Scalia passed. But there's nothing in the Constitution against stacking the court, is there? To the Republicans on this committee, I beg you, don't do this. At least do what you said you'd do after you cynically denied Merrick Garland a hearing. Don't be rank hypocrites. Please don't send us further down a road where all that counts is pure power. Please. Because if you do, if you do, the voters of South Carolina will know you're hypocrites. And so will the voters of North Carolina and Texas, and Iowa. And you will be sending every voter in this country the message that the Republican Party of Donald Trump has absolutely no shame. Thank you. 
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem? This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.